Radio Mano Papachango. you crazy bastard it's mike in des moines hey <clears throat> i want to let you know you know you're like a you're like a really good sushi bar or a really good hooker once you find one you like you just keep going back over and over and over again because it satisfies you that's the way i feel about your podcast i love it um, in fact, I Jones, I start Jones. And if I don't, if, uh, if, if you go too long between, between updates, the brother, just want to let you know, I love you. Keep up the great work. Rock on. Talk to you later. Hey, Chris, this is Matt calling from London. I'm currently hanging out with other tangentially speaking listeners from around the world on discord. And it's awesome. Hope you're well. Hey, Chris, it's Jordan, also hanging out on said Discord. Um, I'm drunk as shit right now. Also a little bit high, but uh, these people are amazing. So I'm coming at you from a boat uh, in Florida, uh, self-isolating on my yacht like a douchebag. Hey, uh, Chris, I'm also in the Discord. We did a group viewing of Duncan Trussell's new show, uh the Midnight Gospel earlier. It was fucking amazing. Just wanted to say hello. Have a good one. Hey, Chris and everybody. This is Ivan. Uh, I currently live in Utah with my wife six years. Um, I'm 26 years old. I'm Right now, I'm in uh, New Jersey doing a travel nurse assignment in an ICU at a hospital over here during the COVID crisis. And uh, a lot of people are dying right now. Um, the ICUs are packed. Every patient's on a ventilator, and um, you know most of them aren't going to come off it, and they're and they aren't going to live through it. And uh, you know it's really sad, and there's not a lot of hope right now, and people are tired, and um, you know I found out you know a couple weeks ago, my wife called me, you know while she's back in Utah right now. Um, I found out I'm going to be a dad. I was pretty pumped about that. She showed me the baby shoes and an ultrasound picture, and it was, you know, I was so excited. Sad I couldn't be with her, but really excited. Um, but then, you know, about a week and a half later, she let me know. She went for an ultrasound, and uh, she had lost lost a baby. Um, and, and that was hard, being away from her. Um, yeah, that was really hard. And then um, a couple days after that, a nurse that was sharing, uh, renting a room in the Airbnb where I'm renting, uh, she overdosed on um, meds that she uh, stole from the hospital. We don't know if it was an accident or if it was on purpose or not, but just really sad on top of everything. Um, you know, the decision to come out here, um, you know, it was a good paycheck. Um, I thought I was getting ahead, you know, um, you know, starting a new chapter in our life. Um, but being away from family and my wife right now and being exposed daily to the sickest of the sick, 
um, you know, it's really scary. I'm, I'm questioning the decisions I made, but you know, I'm here right now and you know, it's 6.30 in the morning. I'm watching the sun come up over the Jersey coast and um, you know, it's a new day and uh, this podcast is an anchor point. Chris, I'm listening to you talking to Theo Vaughn right now and it's making me laugh and I'm really enjoying it. And uh, good luck to all you people out there. Um, I love all you guys. I think I can uh, speak for everyone, Ivan, when I say we love you too, brother. I hope you're doing okay. Uh, That message came in uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, so I hope you're either back in Utah with your wife or that things have at least calmed down a little bit in the ICU if you're still in New Jersey. Thank you for sharing that moment with us. Uh, Yeah, and thank you to the drunken Discord douchebags on the yacht and uh, elsewhere in the world. And, And also Mike who compares me to a hooker in a sushi bar, or hooker and a sushi bar, I guess, to be more accurate. Um, I'm honored by the comparison, you know. Uh, Thank you, Mike. Uh, Everybody, this is a very special episode. Uh, They're all special, you know. It's like my children. They're all special. Um, But this is a guy, Rick Beato. I've mentioned him on the podcast before. Several times recommended his YouTube channel, um, uh, particularly the, uh, what makes this song great, uh, sub channel, I guess he's, he's got different, uh, everything music, I think is the name of the channel, but, um, his, what makes this song great episodes are just so, so good. Um, I won't talk about it too much now because I blow smoke up his ass practically through the whole conversation. I think I probably embarrassed him, um, because, uh, he just, and I said this to him in the conversation, but it's like hanging out with friends, listening to music with attention, not just hanging out with music in the background. But um, I spent a lot of time in high school and college and after. I don't do it much anymore, which is, you know, it's a, a loss. Um, but I have spent a lot of time in my life hitting a bong, sitting back in a room with some candles and playing um, music with friends. And when I say playing, I mean turning, you know, turning it on. I don't mean actually performing it, but just listening to music with great attention, focus, no talking, no nothing. Just get high, lay back, listen to the music and then talk about it afterwards that's one of the the most pleasurable things I've ever done in my life. And, uh, yeah, I mean, geez, in high school, I used to, with my buddy Mike Lang, who's been on this podcast, we used to, like, sit in the car and listen to Rush, you know, like 2112 or um, <laughs> whatever. The, Mike was really more into Rush than I was. But then, you know, he'd explain to me why that song's so great. Why, you know, listen to Getty Lee, listen to what he's doing on the bass there. It's fucking amazing. You know, and we would just like share our enthusiasm and our insights. And we'd like traverse this musical terrain together, even though I'm not a musician. I don't understand music. I don't read music. I, you know, I barely know the difference between a chord and a key. Um, but the 
pleasure that comes from being in the presence of other people who are also really enjoying it, even if none of us really understand it on a technical level. Um, that shared pleasure is just transcendent. It's it's amazing. And um, Rick Beato sort of brings that into my life now as an adult. Uh, it's, you know, when I sit back and watch him um, getting into a piece of music and, and explaining why it's amazing, how it's put together, uh, it increases my appreciation for it so much and really deepens the pleasure. And, and I've said it before, and, I, you know, I think it's accurate. He is like the Anthony Bourdain of music. He takes you to a place you've never been uh, or you have been. But you just never noticed it the way he does. And you'll never experience it the same way again after um, he's shown you around. He's just a fantastic guide. Um, And, you know, if you're like me and you're not a musician and you don't have any sort of technical, um, you know, language, it doesn't matter. You can just ignore those parts, right, where he's talking about, you know, this Pentian scales or blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter because most of what he's talking about is just pleasure. It's just texture and tone and skill and, you know, getting in the pocket. We all know what that means when a musician is right in the pocket, right? It's like, ah, you can feel it. You don't need to understand it. Um, so this has been, uh, this has been cooking for a long time, this episode, uh, at least a year, he and I have been in contact and, you know, he was going to come to LA and then his trip got canceled or I was out of town or whatever. And then, uh, you know, I was going to go to Atlanta and really I have no reason to go to Atlanta. I don't know anyone in Atlanta. I don't know anyone within 500 miles of Atlanta probably, but I was going to fly out there just to meet him. Um, and, and I hope I will, still will someday, uh, as I said to Rick, like, let's not let this replace us actually hanging out sometime. Um, but since I've opened this up to doing remote conversations, uh, he's one of the first people I thought of. And um, so Rick Beato, this is, fuck, I love this guy. These are crazy days. As you know, uh, I've been thinking about some of the things that um, some of the sort of long term changes in American society that could result from what we're going through right now, you know, as uh, the country starts to open up a little bit, relax restrictions. I think there's going to be a second wave. Uh, Most health experts, epidemiologists seem to think this is a big mistake. And um, Americans are um, taking this way too casually, and so there's going to be a second wave of infection. And, uh, you know, guys like Ivan uh, and women who are working in ICUs around the country are going to get slammed again. Um, But anyway, uh, I've been thinking about things that um, long-term structural changes. And a couple of examples that come to mind, for example, are uh, what's going to happen in college, university? I've talked about it in the past and, and sort of encouraged young people to rethink their plans if if the sort of 
you know, just going downstream is uh, borrow a shit ton of money and get a degree and then worry about the debt and trying to find a job later. I don't think that's a very good idea. Uh, And I think that what's happening now is that this bubble of higher education is probably going to burst. People are, are, studying online. They're doing their, you know, interaction with their professors online now. And it's becoming clear that people are paying fifty, sixty, seventy thousand $70,000 a year uh, just to kind of hang around and meet other people on campus. Uh, because the, the books, you get the books yourself. You can read a lot of them online. You uh, can you know, have your interaction with professors online. You can um, replace professors with other people who might be more relevant to what it is you want to study, right? I mean, unless you want to be a professor, it's kind of weird that you're learning about a job from a professor, right? If you want to be an engineer, why not learn from an engineer? If you want to be a yeah, I don't know. I guess I guess it's a bad example because a lot of, you know, the professors in medical school are doctors and professors in engineering school are engineers. But, um, you know, if you're studying poli-sci, you're probably not studying with a politician. Um, and I think that a lot of what people are trying to learn, they go to universities to learn just because they don't, because that's what society tells them to do. That's the structure that's set up. And they don't realize that there are much cheaper, much more direct, much more satisfying ways that you can do this. I've said it before. Find someone who's doing what you want to do. Make yourself useful to them. And, uh, you know, they are likely to at least let you hang around and, you know, organize their files or do whatever it is that, that needs doing. And if you form a relationship with them, you're going to end up with contacts, with recommendations, with skills, with life lessons and all sorts of things that you're not going to get sitting in a room with 50 other people, you know, and in one TA or something. Um, Anyway, so I think what's going on right now with people learning uh, online is going to have uh, a huge effect on higher education probably, I hope, leading to a collapse of that whole financial pyramid that's just victimizing students and extracting resources. Um, I think that that same kind of effect is going to happen in work. So many people are working remotely right now. A lot of companies are probably, um, you know, getting financial reports and they're thinking, why, you know, uh, why are we renting that big office? We don't really need that. That's super expensive. And everybody, the work's still getting done, right? A lot of workers are probably saying, yeah, why am I getting paid by the hour when I can get all this work done in half that time? If I really focus, I don't need to go to the office and sit around and pretend to work half the day and then actually work half the day. I could just be at home, work half the day, and then spend the other half of the day doing whatever the fuck I want. The same amount of work gets done. Why am I being paid by the hour? I should be being paid for the job, right? Um, I think another thing that's happening right now is people are spending a lot less money. They're not going to restaurants. They're not stopping at Starbucks on the way to the office. Um, 
Maybe they're not going to the gym, so but they're you know walking or running around the block or they're uh, working out in the backyard. Uh, they're doing yoga online. Hmm. When this starts to relax and things start to go toward something reminiscent of what we used to call normal, are we just going to start spending all that money again? Or are people going to say, huh, I saved a lot of money not going to restaurants the last few months and I learned to cook. I like cooking. Why don't I just have a few friends over once a week and cook? And then my, my friend cooks on Tuesdays. I cook on Thursdays. There are ways to save so much more money, so much money, and to actually uh, improve the quality of your life. That's one of them. Uh, universal health care. If it's not obvious to everyone by now that this country needs a program uh, to ensure that everyone has access to health care, um, then, then we're lost. I mean, an infectious disease is the perfect medium to demonstrate that everyone is in this together. We're all in this together. If there's one person who is sick and infectious and not taken care of and not monitored and not offered a place to stay, uh, then that person is going to infect other people and we're all fucked. Uh, that's pretty obvious. Universal basic income. There's plenty of money. Every time they play the same fucking game over and over again, right? There's plenty of money to give away to uh, corporations with massive tax cuts. There's plenty of money to give to a defense department that loses track of trillions of dollars. They just, oh, we don't know where that went. Hundreds of millions of dollars in Iraq and Afghanistan. The inspector general report comes out and says, oh, yeah, there's $350 million missing. And they go, yeah, well, we don't know what happened to it. Yeah, sorry. Well, it's time to look forward. Don't look in the past, right? $300 million? Are you kidding me? Gone. Stealth bombers. Totally unnecessary. One just crashed. A stealth fighter jet just crashed in Florida a couple days ago. That's like, I don't even know how much. $27 million or something for that one airplane. Boom, gone. Oh, well. So there's plenty of money for that. But doctors for poor people? <sighs> Come on, we can't afford that. Lunch, nutritious food for kids in school? Can't afford that. It's a scam. It's a scam, people. There's plenty of money. They gave away enough money in these corporate bailouts just a couple of weeks ago Uh they could have given, I think it was $44,000 per adult in the U.S. They could have just given that, $44,000 per adult in the U.S., um, you know, to ride this out. But instead, they give it to companies. And then when individuals need help, they say, we don't, yeah, can't have that. We, we have a deficit. There's a budget deficit. Can't afford that. Um. And the other thing I was thinking about is respect and higher pay for so-called essential workers. That's funny. What they're calling essential workers are people who are, you know, working in the grocery store, uh, delivering stuff, UPS and FedEx and the post office and whatever. 
who are exposed. They're vulnerable, and they're calling them essential workers. But what, what it really means is the opposite. What it really means is disposable workers, people working in meatpacking plants. They're disposable. A lot of them are so-called illegal immigrants uh, who are welcome here because they're disposable. That's the immigration policy. Let them in, but keep it illegal so that they have no rights, no legal leverage to complain about abusive working situation, not being paid, etc. Getting hurt on the job. Oh, you get hurt on the job? Well, go back to Mexico if you can get there. Um, anyway, so there are, there's a lot going on right now uh, that I think is leading to structural change in our society. It's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. And I really hope um, that when we put the pieces back together, we put them together in a slightly different way that um, where we take care of each other rather than exploiting each other ruthlessly as we have been for the last 30, 40 years since the Reagan revolution. All right, that's enough from me. Uh, I don't want to get mired down in politics. I'm going to play a song that I have loved. It's a perfect example of why I love this guy, Rick Beato. This is a song I've been listening to forever. Steely Dan is one of my favorite bands. I love their music. Loved it the first time I heard it. You know, there's stuff I listened to in high school that I'm embarrassed about now. But if you, you know, either embarrassed or just I'm not into it anymore. You know, if the song came on, I would probably change the radio station. Um, But Steely Dan is one of these bands that I got into when I was maybe 15, 16 years old. And um, whatever it was that I heard that I loved then, I still hear it and I still love it. The, The just tight, professional kind of and it's funny, like people seem to either love Steely Dan or really dislike them. I, and I don't understand how anyone could dislike them. Um, they're just so fucking tight and, and man, like jazzy and the groove and the, the solos are amazing. It like takes the best elements of pop and rock and jazz and puts them all together in this really sweet little package. Anyway, this song's called Kid Charlemagne. And um, I probably listened to the songs, you know, 200 times in my life. And when I saw Rick Beato, I think it was the first this, what makes this song great that I saw, actually. Um, he, he totally changed it for me. Um, yeah, I, I listen to it differently now. Um, and uh, you will, too, if you know this song. If you don't know the song, get ready to dig it. And uh, the other thing I love about it is that it's a song about an LSD cook. At least that's my interpretation of it. Definitely a drug dealer, and I'm pretty sure uh, we're talking about hallucinogens. Every A-frame had your number on the wall. You must have had it all. Yeah, I think the people down the hall know who you are. Yeah, I think it might be about Owsley uh, or some sort of fictional character along those lines. I'm going to play that song now. It's called Kid Charlemagne. It's by Steely Dan. And this conversation is with Rick Beato. Check him out. Um, Everything music uh, and or what makes this song great on YouTube. All right, people. I hope you're riding this wave and uh, everything's going well for you. I will be back with you in a few days.
right. Well, Rick Beato, man, uh, you know, it's one of these uh, good news, bad news situations. The, the quarantine forced me to relax my ban on remote interviews or conversations. Um, but of course, what that did was it it drove me back to my list of people I've been, you know, wanting to get on here for years and never found a way to be in the right place at the right time. Um, anyway, so thank you for doing this. You're very it's, welcome. It's a, my pleasure. I'm I'm even a little starstruck, I have to tell you. <laughs> Come on. It's seriously, it's uh I don't know. I I met Peter Gabriel once and um did I tell you the story? No. When we when we chatted that time? No. Um so uh, people who listen to the podcast have heard the story, so I won't go into detail. But basically what happened was that um I, I was sitting next to him at an event and I decided that people like Peter Gabriel get smoke blown up their ass so much that it must be a refreshing change of pace for someone to just treat them like a normal person, right? Mm -hmm. So I decided I was going to treat Peter Gabriel like a normal person. And we just chatted about his family and his kids, and he built this new studio. And I happened to know a guy who he was in high school with. In fact, the guy I know was his original drummer, and uh, it was one of those situations where they played a gig somewhere and an agent came up and said, hey, kid, you know, I can I can take you places, but you got to lose the drummer. So that, <laughs> and that was the guy I know. Right. And uh, so we just had this this sort of normal two dudes sitting around having a chat. And I noticed he kept getting more and more uncomfortable. But I was so committed to just being a couple of guys that I, I couldn't change tactics <laughs> and and so I ended up basically freaking him out, I think. And someone and I told the story on the podcast because I felt so bad about it. It's exactly the last thing I wanted to do. And someone wrote to me and said, look, the reason you freaked him out, I don't think it was that you were treating him like a normal person. I think it was that he sensed your your lack of sincerity, that you were trying to seem in a certain way that you weren't. Because the fact is that Peter Gabriel, I admire Peter Gabriel as much as any living human being. You know, I yeah. think he is a fucking genius. Mm -hmm. And he's he's given me so much pleasure in my life. I used to just sit around with my buddy uh, and we would get high and listen to the song Red Rain over and over and over. I love Red Rain. It's one of my favorite <sighs> songs. And, you know, the Yosundur... Uh, tune this dream yeah where peter gabriel does that background vocal that's so nice anyway so long way of saying dude you have brought so much pleasure to my life i know you're not a movie star and you're not peter gabriel famous <laughs> but in terms of the the quantity of enjoyment that you've brought into my life you're right up there with you know the big ones wow i, I appreciate so that you. chris i appreciate that i have an interesting story about red rain I worked with Tony Levin, who played bass on that record one time, and I asked him specifically about memories of making that record. And he said, well, when we recorded Red Rain, there were the, Peter didn't have the bridge for about six months or so that the song was record was finished, except for the bridge lyrics and melody and and. 
but they had everything else finished and it took six months to get that you know uh, to to finish the song and you always think oh these things are you know you have an inspiration and they just finish it i mean i've worked with i've done a lot of songwriting myself and rarely does it take more than maybe a week at the most but to go months without being able to come up with something but it's also one of the finest records ever recorded and um and daniel lenoir did the production on it's also one of the greatest produced records too so you know you gotta you gotta take your time with these things i i would i mean you've you've done production so you've been in the seat that daniel lenoir fills right can you imagine doing that with you two or peter gabriel no matter of fact those two records so and joshua tree were back to back for uh, daniel lenoir i can't imagine making two of the greatest albums of all time back to back that's um that's I, i just can't even imagine it and what what is the role of um I just saw a, a documentary recently. Uh, who was it? Who who did a record with Daniel Lenoir? They were talking. They they were having dinner. Oh, I know what it was. I was listening to uh, Bob Dylan's autobiography mm-hmm. on the drive out here, um, and he was talking about he was having dinner with Bono and kind of trying to figure out what to do with his next record. And Bono was like, "Dude, you got to meet this guy, Daniel Lenoir. He's really cool. He'll help you, you know, get a vision." And then, I mean, a good, I don't know, have you read the book? Uh, I've not, no. Dylan's autobiography? I mean, a good quarter of the book is talking about his experience with Danny, as he calls him, in New Orleans. And, um, you know, the creative process and how, you know, uh, Lenoir is, like, would get really emotionally into it. Like, to a point where I think he threw a guitar across the studio at one point And, you know, they were, like, almost coming to blows, you know. <laughs> Um, but I just, the, the thing that gets me is, is to be so talented that you can go into a room with geniuses and say, Hey guys, you know, I think we need, you know, stronger guitar presence on this and maybe some horns and whatever. I mean, I don't know. You tell me what, what Lenoir brings to it, but it must, I mean, to get that intimate with someone else's creative process. Well, the thing, it's interesting because Lenoir has a signature sound that he has these great atmospherics. He's a fantastic guitar player and pedal steel player. So he has a lot of his own personality, yet he makes records that, I mean, so and Joshua Tree sound completely different. But his aesthetic is, you can feel it between the two records in the quality of them. Yeah that he really knows how to get performances from artists. He's an engineer. He's a mixer. So he's got the entire sonic palette in his in his brain that he can convey. He knows how to put performances down because he's a great performer himself as far as a part player, and, and uh, he can make suggestions to the artists songwriting-wise and... and um, yet still let them have their own fingerprint, if you will, for their particular record. Because those two records are really uniquely different. They're very different. They're very unique records. So in Joshua Tree. And to think that they were done essentially back to back, you would think that 
you might fall back on some of the same devices. Oh, well, this worked in that record. I'm going to use it again, which is typically what most producers do. But most producers are not Daniel Lenoir. That's why he is a rare, rare person. His his own music is fantastic yeah. as well. Uh, the Maker, yes, great song. Oh my God, yeah, yeah. And sometimes, sometimes, oh, beautiful, beautiful. Um, and he worked with the Everly Brothers as well, didn't he? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His name comes up everywhere. Fascinating. And he did the music for Sling Blade, one of the weirdest, most atmospheric films ever made. I think the the you two working with him. He's from uh. uh the Ontario part, I think Windsor, Canada. Um, and he started working with you two on unforgettable fire. And that was a really, you know, huge thing in his career. And the fact that he was, that he did that record with Brian Eno as well. And they had worked on, they, they did those really the three records in a row. They did unforgettable fire, then Joshua tree, then Octung baby. Mm-hmm. And, they were all radically different records, but the combination of the two of them was uh, was just amazing. Those those are just absolutely brilliant records and so different from one another. Brian Eno is another strange bird yeah. in the musical world. Wasn't he in um, a band called Material, was it, with um, uh, David Byrne, maybe? I think so. Roxy Music he was in. He was... Um, oh, early, right. Yeah, early. Yeah. Uh, and so, and his solo music is incredible and atmospheric. Yeah. And he seems like, in all the interviews I've seen, he seems like a very level-headed guy, um, easy guy to be for people to be creative with. Mm, because he brings yeah. so many ideas of his own in as well. And that's, to me, uh, as a producer it's really important to to bring it be able to bring in musical ideas so many producers over the years were came from being an engineer you engineer a few records you might get a hit record as an engineer then somebody offers you your first production gig and then you might get lucky with that i mean and there were historically there were engineers that became producers but they weren't real necessarily great musicians i won't name any of them and they would have success or failure dependent on the songs that the artist brought in. They couldn't take the songs like a Daniel Lenoir and make them into something that they weren't. They would just be able to engineer and mix them and create, you know, you know, see the artist vision in that way, but not in a, Hey, what if we do this with the song? What if we went to this chord change here? What if the melody went here? And that's mm. really, to me, what the the greatest producers were able to do, like George Martin, for example, with the Beatles. George Martin was an incredible arranger and composer himself. I can't think of someone that could have done Eleanor Rigby, the string quartet part. I mean, that's that's pretty much the whole song is that. Without his parts, I mean, sure, Paul McCartney came up with the music, but uh, but his arrangement is just phenomenal. It, it really is. All of his arrangements were phenomenal, and yet, and I, you know, you have to wonder. He was always gracious about giving credit to the Beatles, and I'm the biggest Beatles fan. I my daughter's name yeah. is Lennon, you know, <laughs> but uh, 
you know, you hear harmony parts like on If I Fell or which is really Everly Brothers-esque. But mm. I, you got to think that that George Martin said, if you went to this chord here or why don't you do this harmony here? He had to have said those things. Now, he never took credit, which I always respected mm. about him. He never, never took credit for anything. But um, but you got to think that, I mean, those guys, how did they come up with all those new ideas all the time? Well, they were the Beatles, but, yeah, you know. Yeah, what do you think happened there? Because, I mean, was it just some bizarre sort of chemistry between the four of them, that, or especially the two of them, but um, the four of them that... I remember seeing this this um, documentary about the Beatles. I think it was a BBC thing a long, long time ago. And uh, it, it it was composed of interviews with each of them, but separate, you know? Like, I think one of them was like... I think Paul McCartney was sort of on a boat going up the Thames or something, and uh, George was in Hawaii at his, you know, estate in Hawaii, and uh, Ringo was in some hotel room in Manhattan, and, you know, and John had already died, but... Um, it was, it was so touching because it cut between the three of them telling the same stories Mm -hmm. and, and they were the same stories, Mm -hmm. you know, like they remembered things the same. They experienced these things as four buddies, you know? And, um, I remember they tell the story of going to visit Elvis, I think on their first American tour, yeah. maybe second, and they were in LA and, you know, someone said, Elvis wants to meet you and there's a car. And so they went in the car and they uh, went to his place and there was Elvis, you know, and they, uh, you know, there was a piano and like he sang a few songs and they sang some songs and they talked about music a little bit. And then they, they left and they were sitting in the limo and they all just looked at each other. And one of them said, I'm so glad we're doing this together because that's what happens if you do this alone. You lose your fucking mind. Yeah. You know, it's too much. Yeah. It's too much for one person to handle alone. Yeah. And it does seem like they managed to keep themselves, keep each other sane in some way. Yeah. If I was ever able to interview Paul McCartney, for example, or Ringo, one of the questions that I would love to ask, which I don't think has been asked enough, is when did you guys have time to write all of these songs? Because there's yeah. really no, there are no lyric sheets that I ever see, hmm. you know, in their own handwriting. You know, John Lennon, I remember I read somewhere he said, well, if, if we can't remember the lyrics, then they're not worth remembering. Hmm. So... You know, they would do in, I believe it was 1965, they had three releases within 12 months. They had, they released, I think, Help, Rubber Soul, and Revolver. These are all, you know, 12, 14 song records. Yeah. It's not just to write all those songs. They recorded and released all of those records all in one calendar year. It's, it's mind boggling to, to, you know, to do, I, be, I believe it was 13 records in eight years. I mean, it's just, it's unfathomable, but one of the things about making records all the time is that you get good at making records. Mm. When the album cycle went to one album every two years, which they they realized in the, I don't know, probably in the 70s or so when people started having these massively big selling records, 
Frampton Comes Alive, Boston's first record, a lot of the <clears throat> those type of album AOR records like that. They realized if they'd have and further in and, and more in the eighties that that if they would have you know three four five singles off a record that they would have a two-year cycle between records well the bands would go out and tour they make a lot of money touring but they then they'd have to come back and retool and start thinking about writing again and you really get out of practice writing i think it's just like anything you got to keep you know got to keep exercising those muscles so the act of always being in the studio always writing songs made them better songwriters because they didn't want to repeat themselves. I met Elton John one time and I asked him that question. Um, and he said that, well, they made two records a year and they would take, they would take two weeks. They would write and make the record in two weeks, go out and tour for six months, come back in, write and make another record in two weeks. They would write the whole record though. It's, it's, uh, mind-boggling to think of writing an elton john record and recording it in two weeks and am i am i right that bernie toppin would give him the lyrics yes and then he would place the music after that yes so when when i met him the one time i met him he was working here in uh, in atlanta because elton lived here i don't know if he still does but lived here for years and he was working at this studio in uh called tree sound that I was making record at. And he was a fan of the band I was producing and came in and introduced himself to the band. And then we went and met him and Bernie and his band. Hmm. And, uh, and he said that Bernie would give him lyrics. He'd put them on the um, piano and then they start rolling tape and he would improvise the chords and the melody looking at the lyrics. Now, the hardest thing to do, Chris, is to write a song to lyrics. Yeah. I've everything I've read about the Beatles, every single song they ever wrote, they had the music first and they wrote the melody to the music mm-hmm. and then the lyrics to the melody, except for Across the Universe. I I believe Lennon had those lyrics first. But other mm-hmm. than that, I believe that every other song was written with the music first and you hear if you had when i was growing up i always had these beetle bootleg records and they'd have versions of yesterday that were not finished and he'd called it scrambled eggs and you know these things are out now but they would always have placeholder lyrics that they would use until they found the right hooks mm. but the melody was the most important thing and then you'd find the lyrics to go with the melody so doing it the opposite way is i can't even fathom it's really amazing but that's why elton is who he is too insanely talented yes yeah you remind me you're talking about Beatles uh you know outtakes and all that I have a younger sister four years younger than me and um you know like a lot of younger siblings she sort of defined herself as what I'm not you know what I wasn't <laughs> right. and um when I was in high school I had I, I listened to a lot of the Beatles and I think my sister liked the Beatles but she didn't want to do what I did so my sister had this incredible collection of all the worst Beatles songs. <laughs> <laughs> like the Beatles' worst hits, man. There are a lot of bad Beatles songs. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> you know, you don't think about that. But, oh, uh, man, yeah. Every time I walk by her room, it's like, I know the band, don't know the song. What do you think of the song A Day in the Life? 
Great song. My God. Incredible song. It, it's almost like five songs. You it know? is. It's, it's, it's um, what's interesting about it is the, the vibe of the two different sections is so radically different. Um, you know, Lennon has the really echo on his voice. It's very, um, I would call it psychedelic sounding. And then McCartney's is, has almost a slapstick feel to it. Yeah. And then it goes back and then, then it goes back into this ethereal thing with that, that has that crescendo with the, yeah, becomes atonal. And it's just, it's, it's a masterpiece. I mean, but it, and it's one of the only songs I know that describes consciousness. Like mm -hmm. it's a song about a dream. I'm in a dream and, and now you're in my dream with me. So there's this, as you say, that echo, that weird kind of like inappropriate emotion, you know, right. oh boy, uh, you know, an, an accident, it killed him, killed a man. Like, and then, and then, like you say, that slapstick, he woke up, right? Dragged yeah. a comb across my head. I got to go to work. Hey, baby, get a <laughs> coffee. Get a, and then he goes into a daydream again. So it's really, to me, it's so interesting. Like, I don't know if they set out to do this, you know, talking, getting back to your earlier points, if, if there was a musical hook and then the rest of it came later. But it seems like somebody said, let's write a song where someone is in a dream and wakes up and then goes back into a dream. And let's talk about that sort of shift of consciousness. You know, it's fucking great. That is that is I'm, really a a McCartney and Lennon, Lennon McCartney collaboration whereas most of their songs whoever was the lead singer on it wrote the song or wrote most of it they would collaborate you can tell you know when john lennon would write a bridge because he would have a um he would you could just tell those lennon lyrics from mccartney's and they would always be really biting and and uh <laughs> completely different mood and uh yeah. but that particular song is uh uh it's just just, just br absolutely brilliant that with the night john lennon died i was in uh my freshman year of college and my roommate i was working on a term paper and my roommate was watching monday night football and he said oh my god john lennon was just shot and i said what and howard cosell was doing the play-by-play -play and then immediately I walked over the TV and I was watching and they just had the ticker at the bottom. And then five minutes later, they announced John Lennon had died. Howard Cosell did. And right then you could hear, I was at Fredonia State University. I went one semester there in upstate New York and you could hear people filing out of the dorms into the big quad area and people were blasting a day in the life. And, and I'll never forget it. It was, um, it was, uh, you know, you don't have the, the kind of media like you have right now with, uh, with the internet, with Twitter, with all these things. And, um, it just, it was a surreal time. And, and, um, I can't imagine any musician that has died that was anything like John Lennon dying in that way, in the way, you know, being shot like that. The Beatles had been broken up for only 10 years. He was only 40 years old, just turned 40. Um, and uh, just what a, what a tragedy. Can't believe it's, about, it's, it's so long ago now. It's amazing. You know, you and I are exactly the same age. 
Um, I was also a freshman in college when that happened, also in upstate New York. I, I, I imagine you and I have probably been in the same room at some point because <laughs> I spent a lot of time in Ithaca, uh, you know, uh, a lot of time tripping out at, uh, you know, whatever that, there's a state park there, Canandegua Falls or some. Yeah, uh, Taganic Falls. Yeah, Taganic Falls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. great place. Oh, man. Um, talking about John Lennon's death, there's, you know, that last record that was released, I, what, weeks after yeah, he double, died or before Double he died? Fantasy, yeah. Yeah. And there's that song, Watching the Wheels Go Round mm-hmm. and Round. What a beautiful epitaph. What a beautiful, you know, like nobody wants to die when they're 40, but to be able to say... I've been there. I've done that. I've seen what it's like. All I want to do now is hang out and, you know, watch the wheels go round and round. I'm done with ambition. I'm done with chasing things, chasing fame. Like I found inner peace, man. It's such a a gift for him to have arrived at that point in, in a 40 year life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was listening to come together the other night. And uh, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think was written as a campaign song for Timothy Leary's run for governor of California. I didn't know that. Yeah, that that's what I've read because he was going to run for governor of California against Ronald fucking Reagan. <laughs> and he ended up getting arrested wow. coming back from Mexico with weed in the car. That was his daughter's and he took the rap and then he that's when he like escaped and went to Tunisia and all that shit. Um, but they had written that song as his campaign song, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but anyway, I was listening to it the other night and it occurred to me that if that song came on the radio right now, it would sound cutting edge. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's inc- There's, you know, insane. I was I was having this discussion today about and I made it I made a video about it probably a year and a half ago or so about what if this a song came out today and there was this radio station I believe it's in Dallas that that somebody sent me a thing on Twitter last night some some big radio station that was talking about my channel yesterday and they were talking about this particular video where I was about if a song came out today and the DJs were all talking with each other saying Oh, Stairway to Heaven or Hotel California, nobody would listen through that intro. There's no way it would be a hit. They'd get 15 seconds in and be like, oh, this is boring and move on. Because that was my point, that nobody has the attention to to actually listen mm-hmm. through any instrumental sections anymore in songs. You know, There are mm-hmm. no instrumental sections in any popular songs, that is. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you've sort of... You know, going back to what I said earlier about how I used to sit around, and I'm sure you did this too, right? Upstate New York, it's 1982, 83, 84, bongs and weed and and listening to records and just fucking grooving on the music and like no conversation, just sitting there. We're going to listen to this record, you know? Yeah. Um, That was such a wonderful time of life and... You know, one of the things that I've noticed getting older and also music, music being digitized and now you don't listen to albums anymore, it's playlists or this song or that song. It's, it's changed the way I experience music mm-hmm. and discovering you, one of the things that's been so 
fucking gratifying about watching your videos is that it's like sitting in that dorm room again in 1982 with my buddies and just going, listen to that fucking guitar. Oh my God, that bass line is incredible. Like just really unpacking it. And, you know, like I said, I've said on Twitter several times, you're like the Anthony Bourdain of music. You make me taste it better. You know, I, I you unpack it and, and show what goes into making it. And it's so much more enjoyable. I'll never listen to like every breath you take the same way again. Well, you I know, after I've listening to you. I I feel I've always had that sense of wonder about music even when I learned all there is to learn or a lot of what there is to learn about music, about music production, about songwriting. Um, you know, all the all the technical aspects of it, but the actual mystical part of it that you're talking about how we experience music i've never changed that i've always been able to maintain that that i like a kid i always feel like a teenager when i listen to music i still experience it in the same way which is um um which i think i i try to make that come across in my videos and but it's natural it's not a forced thing it's just that's just how i feel about music yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, though, Chris, it, the only people I can yeah. experience that with are people that watch my videos, but I'm not really experiencing it with anyone anymore. Really? You don't get together with friends and just like groove out? I mean, what about when you're jamming with people? I've always imagined that to be like, like, you know, an orgy without sex. Am I wrong about that? Well, I, you know, it's jamming with people is great, but I... I probably I don't think I've jammed with anyone since um oh geez, probably since the early two thousands. One night I jammed with Trey Anastasio and John Fishman at Trey's barn um in uh in Burlington. I think that's the last time I jammed with anyone. I jammed with two <laughs> two of the members of Fish on on you know, five chords for uh for two hours or something i was playing bass but uh yeah. that's about the last time i jammed and that was fun why why don't you do it why don't you go to a local bar and just play every once in a while um there's not a lot of places to go jam in atlanta that's that's one of the things is that the uh the live music scene there's not just not a lot of clubs around and mm. at this point in my life i'm i work so much on my youtube channel that i don't have time to do anything else so yeah. um but i can sit and have the same experience it's interesting though but i i have i have six siblings and my younger younger brother john i'm the second youngest my younger brother john is a music he's a guitarist very good guitar player he doesn't do it for a living but he plays in a in a big cover band in upstate new york and my next older brother ray Ray really was the one that taught me how to listen to songs. He'd always say, I was talking to him about this last night. He always say, you hear that part right there? That's the best part in the song. I said, what, what part is it? And he would hum this little background guitar thing or harmony part. I said, I don't hear it. He goes, listen harder. And I'd mm. he'd play it again. He rewind a cassette player with one speaker. He said, put your ear down to the thing. I put my ear down. <laughs> down. I said, oh, I hear it. You mean that yeah. part? And I'd sing it. Yeah. And he we the three of us still experience music that way and we talk with each other but uh uh but i don't really have any friends that 
come over and do things like that. When they do, my buddies that come over here that are in my videos, they come over and we make videos together. And we do talk about these things in our videos, but, but, uh, you know, you and I are the same age. So we have a lot of the same musical vocabulary, music, musical language. So, yeah, definitely. And, and I think I told you when the time you and I chatted like a year ago or whatever it was, um, you know, I, in high school, my best friend was a musical prodigy, just a total genius, kind of like you, like played every instrument, you know, wrote, wrote, um, symphonies, played funk bass, you know, was like Bootsy Collins kind of slap bass <laughs> dude, you know, and, um, just understood music so well. And he introduced me to Rush. He, he just like, you know, would not let me not love Rush. Because initially I was just like, give me a break with this guy's voice. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. I love Getty. I, I can't. <laughs> I just can't with Getty's voice. But, you know, when he when my buddy Mike got me like, but listen to the bass, dude. That's three guys. You know, listen to Neil, those fills like, you know, just like, holy shit. And we shared that that sense of the mystery and the joy of music. But then as Mike got older he became, you know, I think he became, I don't know how to say it, but like some of that magic got drained mm -hmm. and uh, he went to Cornell, which is why I spent so much time in Ithaca, right? Okay. I was at Hobart in Geneva yeah. and I used to hitchhike down to Ithaca and hang out with him and see him play at the nines, I think was the bar. Oh, absolutely. Play, I played, played there a million times. Great place. You probably saw him play. That's crazy. We might have been at one of his games. Oh, my God. I used to go to the Nines all the time. They had the best yeah. deep dish pizza. It was incredible. And Suvlaki House yes. just down the used road. used to go yeah. all the time. Yeah. Um, anyway, I remember one time we were talking about some piece of music that I found, you know, particularly moving. And, and you know, I said, like, just that that feels so nostalgic to me that that just sounds like an old person looking back on their life and remembering the loves and the loss. And, and he's like, well, yeah, dude, cause that's cause it's a, you know, G minor, you know, like, <laughs> and, and, and he was like, you know, that's just a trick. And it, it kind of broke my heart a little bit to mm -hmm. hear him say that. Not that he's wrong. I know minor chords, you know, evoke certain emotions, but that, his sense of music was becoming more and more mechanical, mm -hmm. you know, that he was like, you want to, you want to create this emotion in an audience, you do this, you know, here's how it works. So it's a, it's a great accomplishment that you've managed to learn so much and maintain that affinity with the mystical aspects of music. I, I, um, I never analyze music when I'm listening to it. I just listen to it. The only time I analyze it is when I need to, if I'm going to talk about it for a video. It's funny, mm. Chris, because there are songs that I never figured out, nor did, did I ever even think about what was in the song, what the chord progression was, what the melody was. It just I just enjoyed it. And then when I do this, what makes this song great videos and I have to actually talk about some of the technical aspects. Some of the songs are the first times, even songs I've heard for 40 years that I've, that I ever even figured them out. And I, is this <laughs> yeah. what they're doing? You know, it just yeah. it never occurs to me. I just, I always listen as a fan. Right. Right. You're, you're like a porn star who has real orgasms, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I hope I, it's, I, um, 
My son Dylan has an incredibly good ear, and he he is he, he can hear anything, no matter what it is, and knows what it what what he has perfect pitch. But to a uh, hold on one second. Sorry about this, there, oh, brother. It just uh, uh, hold on. I'm going to do another clap here, Chris. All right, there you go. Uh, so my son Dylan has perfect pitch. He can hear a ten note chord, tell you what 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 the notes are in it. And I've I, seen him do it. Yeah, yeah. but I it's say incredible. to him, Dylan, do you ever think about these things when you're listening to music? He says, No, it never occurs to me. He said, he's, he said, I never think about the pitches of anything except when you ask me what they are. Other than that, and and that's that's how I am with music as well. So it's, um, you know, there's no, I, I guess uh, being able to compartmentalize things like that is um, uh, maybe maybe that's a genetic thing or something. Yeah. that's. Do you have perfect pitch? I do not, no. No. So per, explain to me what perfect pitch is. Perfect pitch is the ability to uh, hear a note without a reference pitch and know what it is instantly. Mm. Um, or be able to reproduce a pitch without an instrument. Uh, if I sang, bah, bah, I think that that's an A flat, but I'm not sure if it is or not. Mm. Um Dylan would know exactly. He could sing any note. He can hear a 10-note chord and tell you all the pitches. But I I have good pitch memory, but I don't do not have perfect pitch. It's about 1 in 10,000 people have it. So it's it's very unusual. Um and it I believe that the children develop it when they're babies in the first year of life when they're um learning. It's part of learning language, I think, and people retain it. All babies retain it or else they lose it. Usually by about nine or ten months. How? Why do you think that? Do do babies express like? Do they cry in certain so, notes or keys? Or? Well, all tonal of of all the languages spoken on Earth, there's sixty five hundred languages spoken on Earth, and these out of these languages, like English, for example, has forty four phonemes or phonetic units that make up syllables. There's about I don't know over two thousand phonemes that combine and to, to make all these different languages well every baby is born with the ability to hear all these phonemes but beginning yeah. uh starting at around nine months they begin to lose this ability so if a baby is exposed to five languages in this time period they'll for the rest of their lives be able to recognize these phonemes and decipher them mm. so right. um there's a, a great TED talk that I saw years ago uh, by a woman named Patricia Cool. She's a um, um, she. It was it's called the Linguist, linguistic genius of babies, and she talks about how they did a study where they brought English speaking babies in for um, that were about nine months of age, in for I don't know 10, 25 minute sessions with a Mandarin speaker, and this Mandarin speaker would speak to the babies, read a story to them and interact with them for only about 25 minutes or so. And they did the same thing. They had three different groups. One of the groups was with a person in the same room. Then the, there were babies that listened to it with video. And then there were babies that only listened to the audio, but the only babies that were able to develop <clears throat> those phonetic 
the the ability to recognize the phonemes of Mandarin were the ones that were in the same room with the Mandarin speaker. And they call that um, engaging the social brain. You have to engage the social brain, which which then the babies, once they're engaged with that, they start taking statistical analysis of the phonemes, where they begin, where they end, where words begin and end. People that speak tonal languages like Mandarin or Vietnamese have a 30% higher incidence of perfect pitch than other people. So, uh, so I thought, well, and, and, and the ability to learn a second language, they, they call a, your native language is the language that you learn as a baby. So I call perfect pitch native music fluency. That's my definite. That's, that's because you... I believe in that same window. So starting at nine months, they become, she calls it culturally bound listeners, meaning they only can hear the sounds of the languages that are spoken in their household or that they've been exposed to. And, uh, and that, that starts so early on, but they are born with these, with, with the neurons and the, 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 um, the algorithms in the brain to hear all these different languages. So I think that perfect pitch is just another language that's retained by some babies and not retained by others. Hmm. My so you so you don't think it's a genetic thing, you think it's more of an environmental situation. There's there's probably a genetic component so people that have a good memory pitch memory um if I think like I said that that's a g, I'm pretty sure that's that's close to a g in my head because I I can kind of hear what the sound of that is. Yeah. So, so I probably have a genetic predisposition to having perfect pitch, or maybe I have more of my brain is a, a larger portion of my brain is, dev, you know, devoted to music or music learning. Um, but I didn't have a piano growing up. Um, I didn't play the kind of music that I played for my son, Dylan, when I was a baby. My parents didn't play that for me. And so I didn't develop these skills. And and I have 18 nieces and nephews. None of them have perfect pitch. But mm, um, right. so so anyway, so that's just that, that's just a theory I have. I really think that that most babies could develop or retain perfect pitch if they were given the right environment. Um, right. Do you have any thoughts on on where music comes from? Like, you, you know, talking about the mystical qualities of it. What? why where does that power come from you know i think music is one of the great mysteries of human experience i think that when you play a string like a guitar string any type of string there are natural harmonics that happen because of the atmosphere when you divide a string in half and you play a note, just touching it on a guitar, for example, it produces the note an octave above. If you move it, if you divide it again, it produces the note a fifth above and then divide it again a third above. And then all of a sudden you have a major chord. So it's in the overtone series in nature is our, our, there's actually chords like the major triad is part of our, mm. part of our atmosphere. So I think that that has something to do with it. I think that uh, the thing that amazes me, Chris, is how differently people experience music and create music. I just hear people that are just create this incredible music. And I think, how do they think of this stuff? And it just blows <laughs> me away. You know, I mean, 
yeah. with as many people as I've worked with in my life, as much music as I've studied, I still think, where do they, how do they come up with this stuff? It's, it's, <laughs> it just blows me away. I get on Instagram for five minutes and I see people yeah. playing guitar all these weird ways with, you know, with both hands and creating all this crazy, interesting music. And, and, uh, it just, it's, it's really, a, a it's, it's a trip. I interviewed a ethnomusicologist once on this podcast and I asked him that question and he he thought that music was it came out of a sort of um like a replication or a, a response to the sounds of nature which you know I guess is what you were referring to there mm -hmm. you know that the world contains these notes and chords um, but he was specifically talking about insects and birds that people sitting around a fire at night listening to the frogs and the, you know, whatever the, wah, 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 you know, that they would create a different kind of music than than um, people in a different in a desert, for example, mm -hmm. you know, or um, and I, I remember reading years ago. I don't remember the source, but someone um, some musicologist was arguing that he thought that the reason that um, Native American music was relatively simple, mm -hmm. right? Like kind of boom, 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 and then the singing over it versus African music, which was super complex rhythmically, is that there were lots of uh, psychedelic plants in the New World, in the Americas, that Native people would use to go into trance and altered states. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Africa, there aren't um, any like non-toxic uh, mind-altering plants that people had access to so they developed these complex rhythms as a way of inducing wow. trance interesting yeah that sounds pretty yeah. plausible to me yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's an interesting way of bringing these two worlds together and and really showing that music is part of the natural environment right it's a response to a need to change consciousness in a way um, it's interesting. Like I, I went to India years ago in like 1987 and I decided I was going to be in Asia for a year. And I was you know, looking at my backpack and trying to decide what to eliminate, you know, to go as light as possible. And I made the fateful decision not to take my Walkman and my 15 cassette tapes. Cause I thought I'll just listen to Indian music, you know, <laughs> it was, I mean, I, uh, I don't know. I consider myself a pretty open-minded person, but it's really hard for me to take any pleasure from straight-up pop, popular Indian music. You know, like Ravi Shankar playing with the Beatles, sure, yeah. Um, but do you, I, I mean, I'm, I follow your channel, um, but you don't do a lot of world music. It's mostly, you know, pop, rock. I haven't seen you do, you know, Amadou and Miriam or you know I'll tell you, you know. I don't do well I don't do a lot of jazz on my channel I used to but I don't do it anymore even though my background is as a jazz musician why is that the audience just isn't there for yeah it? um people the the number of people that are on YouTube that are interested in jazz is is very small and it's not that I do mm. it for a particular audience but there are there are certain when I started on YouTube, there are there were a bunch of jazz labels that absolutely will not allow their music to be played or be talked about. And so 
at a certain point after getting so a bunch of videos blocked, I just stopped talking about it. And it, right. and it's, and it's, um, it's disappointing to me because it's something I'm really interested in and it, other people just aren't interested in it. And, and, um, so I have, I, you know, modern classical music. I did a lot of videos on that early in my channel and I don't really talk that much about it anymore. Um, so I, I think I, I just have gone in cycles on, on, on what I do and, and, uh, Right now in the, where we are, you know, people are, are indoors, uh, watching a lot of YouTube. And I know that people love the, what makes this song great series. And I've, I've been trying to get to a hundred episodes. I mean, I just put out my 88th today and oh, I, my, what did you put out today? I put out a band named Carnival. That's, that's a, a heavy rock band. They're from Australia. Not a lot of people know them. Yeah. But this song, I really like this song, and it's um, uh, it's an incredibly great sounding song. So as a producer, I have my producer hat. Where songs that I this isn't this isn't a song like that, but there are records, Chris, that I listen to only because I like the sound of them. I may not mm. like like any of the songs, but they mm. sound so good that. I I enjoy the craft, right? The, just right. the way things are arranged, the how they sound big and they're full and they're all the tones are just great and rich. Even if the song and and the vice versa, there's there are records that have terrible, terrible sounds, and the, the you know the songs are amazing. Bands like Nirvana that I was you know so into. There's you know a lot of my favorite yeah. records are not great sounding records. Were you an REM fan? I was a huge REM fan. Yeah. Some of their records, I, I think they, I've read that they were kind of embarrassed at how bad the sound, I think Orange, Orange Crush was on, what was that album? I forget. Um, that was on could, a Green, maybe? Yeah, I think it was on Green. Yeah. yeah. I think that was the record that they were like, eh, sorry about that. Like, we're going to re-engineer that and re-release it. <laughs> I, I absolutely love REM. Um there's a there's a song off Automatic for the People called Try Not to Breathe. It's one of my when I when I try to give an example of a perfect melody, I just think of that. That song just always comes to mind. It's a song in three, four. I call it a sea shanty, but it's just an absolutely beautiful melody and an mm. incredibly good lyric. Michael Stipe is a fantastic lyricist. And and this song just blows me away every time I hear it. And there, you know, these guys are from here. Or from, you know, I'm in Atlanta. They're in yeah. Athens. I've, I once was on a, on a bus, a, a shuttle, airport shuttle with Mike Mills, but I wouldn't talk to him. I was nervous, and, uh, uh, but I've never seen the other guys. And everyone I know, every one of my friends, Chris is like, oh my god, I've seen those guys a million times. I've met Michael Stipe a million times. It's like, what, what? How come I never meet anybody like that? Have you ever unpacked an REM song on the series? I did. Yeah, I did. Um. um Losing my religion. I did losing my religion. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think I, I it was that, really, yeah. it's really tough. Cause I was going to do, it's the end of the world as you know it. And <laughs> but I, that's not a good song to talk about yeah, these days not right now. No. Um, <laughs> but I feel fine, but I feel All fine. Right. Yeah. Um, and I'll and tell you, I, I was thinking that, 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 that REM is a band that 
young people don't get any exposure to now. It's true. They've totally disappeared and they were so huge. Yes. It's like Holland Oats. I, I never hear Holland Oats anymore, you know, but they were massive, massive for a while there. Yeah. Strange strange how you know, Elton John is still still going. God, I heard I heard some Paul McCartney songs the other day. Much as I love Paul McCartney and the Beatles, Paul McCartney's solo career annoys the shit out of me. <laughs> I, I like that song jet you know that song yeah i like jet but oh, but some God. of paul's later stuff i mean the early Stuck records were were amazing maybe i'm amazed and yeah, i think i think the stuff off wings over america were uh the live record was an incredibly good record but hmm. you know the thing about the beatles one more thing is that that people don't realize is that no one had turned 30 when they broke up because when they broke up <laughs> lennon lennon was turning 30 that Crazy. year in 1970, but he hadn't turned 30 because his birthday is at the, you know, December and they, they broke up and George Harrison was 27. I mean, he's writing what? something and, and yeah. here comes a son on the, you know, on, on the Abbey road and he's just a young guy. Yeah. Yeah. It, what do you think would have happened? It wasn't uh, for a while. Wasn't uh, Eric Clapton supposed to play with, I know he played on Layla and he sat in on some songs, but like, while he's, you know, having an affair with George's wife, they're, you know, playing songs and they're best friends. I mean, that it was so the the emotion. I sometimes wonder if if artists in general, including musicians, sort of nourish that emotional drama because it, you know, like because it I feeds mean, their I, creativity. Exactly. Like, yeah. when are you going to write poetry except for when you're in, you know, heartbroken? You know, like that's when the best stuff comes out. So it's almost like they're drawing their own blood, you know, just to to get the material. Well, that's why millionaires are typically not great. So once once artists become millionaires, they typically mm -hmm. lose their ability to to uh, get to that place unless they're, you know, using a lot of drugs or things like that, whatever it is. Right. I, you know, I, I, I uh, speaking of uh, autobiographies, I listened, um, you know, I drive around in the van in the summer. So yeah. that's when I get the chance to listen to some books. I listened to uh, Keith Richards last year. And that was interesting. Um, but it, half the book was about heroin, mm -hmm. you know, just about running from the cops and scoring here and, you know, trying to get through the airport. And it's like, really, dude, like you're you know super rich and famous and you're still playing this weird game you know with running from the cops but i guess that's what fed the creativity he had to go shoot up the whole band would be sitting in the studio waiting and he'd go to the bathroom and come back with the hook you know yeah unbelievable yeah so um i just want to i know i'm blowing a lot of smoke up your butt here but uh <laughs> your stevie wonder superstition episode oh, that I mean, a great song, and you were so obviously having a great time with it. It it was fantastic. Really I mean, that's enjoyable. one of those things, Chris, where you just you know he's playing all the stuff on it, and it's just phenomenal. You know, do you, you yeah. think? He, I mean, how old was he when he was doing that? He was in his twenties, and it's just brilliant. Yeah, it's just brilliant, yeah. absolutely brilliant. All those clav parts. That song is impossible to play. Those clavinet parts that he's playing there rhythmically. Oh my god! And he played the drums on it and everything. It's just, it's amazing. It's really amazing. <laughs> so how how do you? 
I mean, can you even think about something like, you know, Stevie Wonder and Beethoven or Gustav Mahler? Like, is there a commonality among people like that? Um, that's a great question. That is a great question. Um, you know, these symphonic composers like Beethoven would spend they would spend years writing pieces so they would they would work on pieces simultaneously and um um it's not the same i think that there's much more it's probably the the analogy would be their improvisations versus the songwriting of of somebody of a stevie wonder or the beatles or whoever it is mm-hmm. um but when it comes to that their writing of an orchestral piece um um it's 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 hard to um it's hard to compare the two it's a in, very interesting question i have to think about that yeah i i i'm a big Mahler fan mm-hmm. or at least i used to be when yeah. i was in college i i had a friend who was super into Mahler, and we used to sit around in his apartment get high and listen to the First, second, and third symphonies, particularly, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, it, it's interesting. Like there, there's music I'll listen to in certain, um, either certain times of my life, I guess. Like I don't listen to Rush anymore because I think my testosterone level has just gone down too far <laughs> to appreciate it. You know, um, but uh, you know, like uh, Bach, uh, cello suites. Or um, Beethoven late quartets mm-hmm. late at night when it's you know I'm in bed I'm I, I'm not going to sleep you know because I know I'm going to be awake for another hour but I'll listen to one of the the last four quartets just in- incredibly connected to that music you know um, and also uh, Pat Metheny as falls Wichita so falls Wichita Love falls. It. I, I mean, to me, that's like in the same part of my musical library, even though it's a totally different kind of music, but it evokes the same sorts of emotions and tranquility and and just, oh my God. And some Pink Floyd as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you, are you into Pink Floyd? Absolutely. Yeah. I just haven't done an episode on them because I'm afraid it'll get blocked. Right. People keep asking me, why don't you do Pink Floyd? Do you, do you hate Pink Floyd? What? (laughs) <laughs> I did the uh, 20 greatest guitar solos of all time. And I had David Gilmore was number Comfortably one. Numb. Comfortably numb. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Come on. What's not to love. Have you seen the, the uh, movie Pink Floyd live at Pompeii? Yes. But they're sitting around in the dirt, you know? Yeah. There's this, there's this song called um, Seamus mm-hmm. uh, from, I think it's on the metal album. I love and they metal. play it. Yeah. Great. And they play it on that uh, in that movie, and so it's a blues tune written for the a dog named Seamus. Very simple. I was in the kitchen. Seamus, my old dog, was outside. Well, I was in the kitchen. Seamus, my old dog, the sun was sinking slowly. My old hound dog sat right down and cried. And then it's like this sort of blues, very slow blues, and the dog. and you can see in the movie that it's not like dubbed in or something the dog is singing right so it's interspecies communication absolutely 
I mean, what what is going on there? Like, so the dog hears the blues, right? I mean, have you ever had a dog? Or do you do you have dogs? Two dogs. Do they groove to the music in some way? You know, they used to love to come into the studio, but now they're both deaf now. One is 16. They're both labs. One's 16, one's 15. And we have a cat that's 19, and all three are deaf. And it's really (laughs) weird to have three (laughs) deaf animals, Chris, because they don't, you know, they react to clapping because I think they can feel the air pressure change, but that's the only way I can get their attention at all. Otherwise, wow. I have to go over and and, and uh, wake them up. But it's funny. I have three deaf animals, but they used to love to come in the studio and listen. They would sit right at my feet when I'd be working on things and uh, my two labs and loved it. Mm, yeah, that's that's right. I don't know if it's the vibrations that they feel or what whatever it is. You know, they can hear things that we could, you know, when they could hear, they could hear things we could never imagine hearing. Yeah. So. Yeah. I wonder what that uh, a dog's mind is like with music. It's yeah, it's, it's fascinating. All right. I'm, I'm not going to drain any more of your time. We've gone on for an hour here. I could just sit around and like talk music with you for forever, man. But um, I just want to really thank you again for what you're doing. I, it's, I mean, you're a great teacher and, and the, the greatest teachers are the ones who let you see how much they're enjoying themselves. And, and you really nail that every time. Thank You've you. You've inspired me. I think I told you I started um, a podcast series called What Makes This Book Great. Yeah. It's, you know, definitely inspired by you. And it's the same. I, I read a story that I've read, you know, 20 times in the past. But because I know I have to explain it now, I read it differently. And yeah. I see, see things that I didn't see before. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's uh, so you know you know exactly what I'm talking about. Then one of these days I'm gonna do a video called "What Makes What Makes This Song Great Great," <laughs> and, I, and I'm gonna unpack you unpacking Stevie Wonder. <laughs> I like that. That's good. All right. Do I have your? You won't block it. No, it? no, of course not. No, <laughs> love to see that. All right, brother. Hey, thank you so much. And uh, please, you know, let's not let this, you know, make us not actually get together one day. Absolutely. No, we're we're definitely doing it. I want to hang out and listen to So with you. Perfect. Thanks, (laughs) Chris. All right. That was Rick Beato. As you can tell, one of my favorite people who I've never met. Uh, And I'm sure a lot of you are also among my favorite people whom I've never met. And uh, I really appreciate you listening to this and supporting the podcast however you do, whether it's uh, with a financial uh, tip jar contribution through my website, uh, tangentiallyspeaking.com, or by using the Amazon affiliate link that you find there, or uh, just telling friends or writing a review on iTunes or whatever you do. Um, I really appreciate all of it, even if all you're doing is just tuning in every once in a while. I appreciate that, too. I've got some really good episodes coming up. I'm I'm in a situation now where I'm feeling um, sheepish because I've done so many. uh, I've recorded so many. And it takes, you know, they're they're backed up. And then I was doing the what makes this book great thing inspired by Rick, uh, which I intend to continue. People seem to really dig that and I enjoy it. Um, So they're they're dribbling out bit by bit. Um, 
but I do feel apologetic for the people I've I've already had the conversations with, and they're waiting for their episode to drop, and it's it's dragging on. Um, the main reason for that is a the remote interviewing thing opened up a lot of possibilities uh, that I hadn't had before. And then uh, I'm about to leave this rented house where I've been for the last couple of months and head out in the van uh, for the summer. I'm not going to have Wi-Fi. So I wanted to bank a bunch of uh, episodes so that I won't be stressing out about it over the next couple of months when I'm sitting in the woods in Idaho or wherever I'm going to be. So, um, anyway, there's some excellent, really interesting ones coming at you soon. So stay tuned for that. And, um, thank you again for all your attention, your time, your, uh, funny, bizarre, uh, intros that some of you send to me. Um, in fact, some people have responded to the, what makes this book great series with, uh, specific intros, um, for those, which I'll, I'll address the next time I do that. One person wrote me a really beautiful thing from the perspective of the young woman in Cat Person. Uh, That was a really creative and interesting way to respond to that. I'll read her thing next time I do one of those episodes, which will be shortly. All right. Love y'all. Keep it together. Take care of each other. Catch you soon.